If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. For the past two Sundays, we've been looking at the fear of the Lord. And what we have done thus far, or have attempted to, is first of all, to see how that the fear of the Lord is found throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. We found that it is, in fact, a pervasive and dominant theme in Scripture. That's what we looked at the first week. And last week, we saw, or we tried to define and illustrate the fear of the Lord, again, from Scripture. The fear of the Lord as in dread and terror, the fear of the Lord as in veneration and awe. Normally, at this point, I would spend a bit of time, maybe more than a bit of time, in review. Um, but today I won't do that. The sermons are available on the church website, thanks to Dave, uh, if you want uh, to listen to them. But I, what I will do before we get into what we're looking at today is read to you from Psalm 97. In the beginning of the psalm, The Lord reigns, let the earth be glad, let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and dark and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes out before him and consumes his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. And here, the psalmist simply gives us a picture, I think, of the fear of the Lord as we see it in creation. That God is an awesome God and and creation itself melts in his presence, if you wish. Today, what I want to look at as we continue is to consider the essential ingredients of the fear of the Lord. What is it that we need? What is it that will provoke in us or create in us the fear of the Lord? I will suggest three essential ingredients and go from there. The first is that we must have a correct concept of the character of God. One of the passages that we looked at uh, the first week was found in Revelation chapter 15. And what we found here is that the fear of the Lord is part of the worship that is pictured in heaven. Which to us, I think, is a bit troubling because we think of fear as something that belongs in a fallen world, not in a perfect world, as we will see in the presence of God. What we find in Revelation 15 is that the victorious saints who have overcome the beast and his image, those who are in the presence of God, sing the song of Moses. And this is a part of what they sing. Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear you and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. As the victorious saints behold God, they praise him. They see him for who he is. He is, O Lord, God the Almighty. He is one who is just and true. He is the King of the nations. He alone is holy. And so they ask rhetorically, who will not fear him? They say, in essence... Anyone who sees God as he is will, in fact, fear him. I think what is implied in this passage 
is that correct concepts of the character of God are an indispensable element. They are an, an important ingredient in producing the fear of the Lord. If we were to ask each other, if I were to give you a theological quiz, if you wish, what are the attributes or the aspects of the character of God, what would we answer? I think certainly we would want to begin with the love of God, which is incomprehensible. The mercy of God, which is without measure. His compassion, his fatherly tenderness. We would be right to do so, to mention these. But how does the fear of the Lord factor in with these aspects of his character? I think we need to consider other aspects of his character, which in fact produce or should produce fear in us. One is his majesty, as what we see in Psalm 97. His holiness, his justice, his wrath, his the fact that he is king, he is a sovereign over all creation, his omniscience, his omnipotence, his eternality. These can and should produce fear. Both the fear of dread, but also, I think, primarily the fear of reverence and awe. Now, one might argue that such fear is unhealthy. It's a result of our weakness, our fallen nature. But what John writes about in Revelation 15 those who are in the presence of God, who no longer live in the fallen creation, those who see clearly what now we only see darkly through a glass, as Paul puts it, by faith. They see God for who he is. And their question is, who will not fear him? Such a vision of God should provoke fear in us. What is it about God, or is there something that I could give you, that I could suggest to you, that we should meditate on, that we should think about, that we should put at the center of our thoughts, that might help us um, keep his character in the front and center and then provoke in us the fear of the Lord. There is something. It's the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. I think for most of us, when we think of the cross, we think of it as a display, an evidence of God's love. And it certainly is that. Um, God's love is revealed supremely in the cross, his amazing grace. But think a moment, is not the cross also the clearest revelation of God's justice and his wrath? Why doesn't God just say sort of ollie ollie income free? Why is it that Jesus has to suffer? It is because of God's justice and his wrath that even God's son was not spared. As Paul tells us, he did not spare his own son. One pastor put it this way, what a display of inflexible justice it is when God spares not his own son, but brings on him the full brunt of his wrath against sin. What a display of spotless holiness. God is so holy that he will turn his back on his only begotten, the one of whom he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Our view of the cross should not dilute or negate any sense of the fear of the Lord. Rather, I think it should serve to heighten, should cause us to fall before God in reverence and in awe. This is a God of holiness and of justice and yes, even of wrath. we should consider that the salvation given to us so freely required the slaughter of God's own son. It required that someone stand in our place and experience the wrath of God. 
I think when we begin to have a sense of the character of God, we will begin to develop the fear of the Lord. The second thing that we, the second ingredient, I think, to producing in us the fear of the Lord, we must have a sense of the presence of God. If we, in fact, move toward a correct view of the character of God, I think we will then begin to have a sense of the presence of God. Because, after all, one of God's attributes is that he is omnipresent. I think we would all agree with that. But who is this God who is omnipresent? We tend to think of God only in terms of grace and love. When, in fact, he is a holy God, a majestic God, he rules as a sovereign. And, again, from Psalm 97, the earth melts at his presence. In most of the places in scripture where we see the fear of the Lord illustrated, where someone is seized with fear, it is because there is the realized presence of God. We saw this in the story of Jacob, of the latter. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. The story of Moses and the burning bush. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer. God said, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And then Isaiah's vision in the temple in Isaiah 6. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. But it is in our text today that I think we have one of the clearest expressions David, we see, who writes Psalm 139, who has a right view of the character of God and at the same time is filled with the sense that God is always with him. David is filled with the sense of the pervasive presence of God. He begins the psalm, if you look at it in verse number one, with his awareness of God's omniscience, that God knows everything. Beginning in verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. What is David suggesting? That God is somehow this spy satellite who is over creation, who is able to look down and see everything that we say, to hear everything that we say, I think it's much more than that, particularly when we see in verse number four, before a word is on my tongue, uh, you know it. Listen to what follows, verse number five. You hem me in, behind and before, You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. 
David is not saying in these verses that he is unable to flee from God's knowledge or God's omniscience. Rather, that he is unable to flee from the presence of God. No matter where David would go, if he could, up into the heavens or into the grave, the depths, God is there. God is not simply aware of David. God is present. He is there. It's not just that that God will see David. God will be there with David. And if you will, we'll keep reading in verse number 9. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. See, it's not only his omniscience, but his omnipresence. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will, not sh- the night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. These are wonderful verses that speak of God's omniscience, the vastness of God's thoughts, but also of his omnipresence, that God is still with him. In the light of these realities, David closes the Psalms, if you look this Psalm, in verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. What do you suppose would be the effect if we had a sense of the presence of God with us all the time? Well, let me ask you a question. Has this ever happened to you that you were going to do something that you knew you shouldn't do and then somebody came along and it prevented you from doing that because you're like, well, if I can't do it because if they see me do that, that's not good. Whether it's a parent or a sibling or a friend. How much more the God of the world, of the universe. If you have a sense of his presence with you all the time, does that not in fact keep you from sin? The fear of the Lord would keep us from doing what we should. The problem for us may be in fact that we have no sense of the presence of God. Thus, there is no fear of the Lord as there should be. It would cause us to reconsider our actions. Perhaps we are like Samson. After his hair is cut, he had no sense that the Lord had left him. We, by God's grace, must cultivate a sense of the presence of God. By the way, the Lord is with us whether we recognize it or not. But when we do not recognize it, then I think we do not have the fear of the Lord. We have examples of scripture, in scripture, of people who had this sense. One is Abraham in Genesis 17.1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. Simply put, this is who I am. I am God Almighty. With this sense of my presence, this should be the most important thing to you. Now walk before me. And the result would be 
that Abraham would be blameless because he knew that God was always with him. And here we find that there are moral and, moral and ethical implications for one who believes in the reality that God exists. This is illustrated in Genesis 22 when God says to Abraham to sacrifice his son, your only son whom you love. And what is Abraham's response? Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. We should not be surprised at this because Abraham knew who God was and walked before him. As the writer of the Hebrews would tell us centuries after the fact, Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. He knew the character of God. This is who God is. God can do the impossible. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Second person that we could mention in this regard is Joseph in Genesis 39. Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers to the Ishmaelites. They in turn sell him in Egypt to Potiphar. But there he becomes an important figure. He is put in charge of the household. Potiphar's wife wants Joseph. And Joseph refuses her. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I then, or how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? One could make the case, if we could go back in time and sit down with Joseph and say, listen, um, you're talking about God sinning against God. Where was God when your brothers threw you in the pit? Where was God when they sold you to the Ishmaelites? Where was God when you were sold into slavery in Egypt? And yet Joseph has a sense of the presence of God where he says to this woman, I will not do this. He has a fear of the Lord. Therefore, he will not do what she wants. God's presence or an awareness of his presence should keep us from sin. And Paul says as much in his second letter to the Corinthians. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. The ESV has bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. What are those promises? It says, since we have these promises, we need to go back a few verses and remember that the chapter divisions are artificial. So it's actually part of the same thought, uh, uh, the theme there. In chapter 6, verse 16, As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. In other words, I will always be present with them. And this is a promise, but it is also something that should cultivate in us a fear of the Lord. By the way, um, this promise that Paul speaks of is first mentioned in the book of Leviticus, in which God spells out the laws through Moses that the people of Israel are to keep. It is repeated in the prophets, in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And finally, we find it in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. This is a promise from God. The third ingredient uh, to the fear of the Lord is we must have a constant awareness of our obligations to God. To live in the fear of the Lord is not just to know who he is, his character, to know that he is here, his presence. 
these are important. But it is also to recognize that in any and all circumstances that we might find ourselves, the most important issue for us is, what are my duties? What are my obligations to God who is present? Today we have gathered, as we do every Sunday, to worship the triune God. We are aware, or should be aware, of our relationship to one another. We are members of this congregation. But as important as that is, we need to ask ourselves, what is God's relationship to me? And what is my relationship to him? What does God require of me? And what am I rendering to him of what he requires of me at this moment? If we worship the triune God in the fear of the Lord, the most important relationship is our relationship to God. And our greatest concern concern should be whether or not we are fulfilling our duties to him. Now, I want to be clear. Let me back backtrack a bit here. As we gather, our relationship to one another is, in fact, very important. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his listeners, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Our relationship to one another is, I think, critical. It really is important. In 1 Corinthians 11, after the passage that we read when we have the Lord's Supper, Paul says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. What exactly is the body of the Lord? That's us. The church is the body of Christ. And if as we gather to worship God, we do not have an awareness of that, there's a real problem. There's a real problem. Paul says, so then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for each other. It is important, the relationship we have with one another. Now, if this is important, in fact, if you read 1 Corinthians 11, um, Some people in the church in Corinth, in fact, have died because of the way they've treated other believers. Paul says, because of the disrespect, some of them have fallen asleep. God has, in fact, disciplined them. If our relationship to one another is that important, how much more our relationship to God? So we might ask, what are my obligations to God? Perhaps you're already feeling a sense of burden. Obligation might be too big of a word, too heavy of a word. wait a minute, the one who gave us life, the one who has given us new life, it's it's a burden uh, to do what he asked, that we might have some, in fact, obligations to him. Let me suggest to you several things. Our first duty is to love God supremely. We are to love him above all things. You're familiar with the passage in Matthew Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. We should know that we cannot obey this commandment fully to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We know that apart from the grace of God, this is something we cannot begin to do. But it is because we are the children of God We know, or we should know, that we are to walk in the fear of the Lord, that there comes an awareness, yes, 
This is to be my first duty. I am to love God above all else. And as John put it, we love him because he first loved us. The second duty that I would suggest to you is that we are to obey him implicitly. Jesus told his disciples the night before his death, you are my friends if you do what I command. When the apostles, some days later, this is after the death, burial, resurrection, and the ascension, after the day of Pentecost, they are brought before the Sanhedrin, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, and in the name of Jesus, he, the high priest, said, yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. For those who walk in the fear of the Lord, the apostles understood that their obligation was to obey God, and it transcended all other obligations. In the same way that our love for God is to transcend all other loves, so is our obedience. The third obligation I would suggest to you is to trust God completely. We are told in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. But we must confess, I will confess, that this runs contrary oftentimes to how we perceive our circumstances. What we find in Hebrews 11 is a series of stories of the people of God who trusted God in the face of circumstances that screamed the opposite of trusting God. How could they do this? We're after Jesus, okay? Jesus has come into the world. We have the death, burial, resurrection. We have Easter. Um, they didn't know this. How is it that they trusted God so implicitly? I believe it is because they had the fear of the Lord. They had a sense of his character and a sense of his presence. They, they loved him supremely. They obeyed him and therefore they trusted him was not a fear of dread, but of reverence and awe. They trusted that the Lord God Almighty would do as he had said. We see this supremely in the Lord Jesus. For those of you who haven't been with us in this series, I think one of the most startling things, for me at least, was the passage in Isaiah 11. It's a messianic passage. It's looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and power. So far, so good. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Jesus, God in flesh, trusted the Father completely. We see this in the garden. We see this on the cross. It has been said that the last words of Jesus before his death were perhaps contained the greatest act of faith ever exercised on earth. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. After all he has been through, it is because of the fear of the Lord that Jesus is able to say to the Father, I commit my life, my spirit to you. In Isaiah 50 we read, Who among you, among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, 
trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. I'm sorry, if I'm in the darkness and I have no light, why would I trust in the name of the Lord and rely on God? It is because of reverence and awe. Because such a person would have the fear of the Lord. Believing and trusting that the all-knowing, the ever-present, the eternal, the just, the merciful, the loving, the gracious God can and will do what is best, even though I may not see it that way at the moment or maybe for a period of time afterwards. In the light of these obligations of love, obedience, and trust, we are to walk in the fear of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 10, and we looked at this in the first sermon, we find fear and obedience and love joined together. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God. There it is. The fear. To walk in all his ways. There's obedience. To love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. There it is. They're all together. The fear of the Lord, love, and obedience, trust in God, they go together. What I would have you remember today are the ingredients of the fear of the Lord. First of all, a correct view of the character of God. I think this is where most of us go off track. We have a different vision of God than what is presented in Scripture. Or it is lopsided. We see God as a God of love, which he is. God is love, but also God of justice. And if we ignore that, then when certain things happen, we begin to complain and say, there's something that's not right here. We must have a correct view of the character of God. Secondly, a sense of the presence of God. That God is always with us. That is a frightening thought. To think that there are times when we are by ourselves, where we are in a place that nobody knows us, that we can do whatever we want. God is always with us. And thirdly, we should have a constant awareness of our obligations to God. I am convinced that the absence, and perhaps that's too strong a word, but let's go with it. The absence of the fear of the Lord in our lives is due to a deficiency in one or more of these ingredients. And the beginning of the solution is to look to the cross. It is in the cross that we see the character of God. It is in the cross we have a sense of the presence of God. And I think it is in the cross that we now see God has given us life and we now have obligations. We are to love him, we are to obey him, and we are to trust him implicitly. By the church calendar, this week begins the Lenten season, which will culminate with Easter. I think this would be a good time for us to focus and to meditate on the cross of Jesus And by God's grace, it would lead us to the fear of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, how gracious you are to us. And we are grateful for that. 
think we would rather focus on that than your justice, even your holiness. As a result, we may not fear you, we may not reverence you or respect you as we should. We have a warped view of who you are. We have no sense of your presence. And we see our obligations as optional, as things we can do if, if we feel like it, or if we're feeling particularly spiritual. Your spirit lives within us. May he speak to our hearts today. May he open our eyes, open our minds, our hearts to see the truth of this. And by your grace, may we begin to develop a fear of the Lord. May you hold the cross of the Lord Jesus always before us, that in it we see who you are, what you have done for us. I thank you that you've gathered us together today to worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you for the three years you've given Ben and Becca together and ask that you would give them many more and watch over them. We have a meeting in a few moments. May you guide us in what we do. May everything be done decently and in order. May we have a sense of your presence with us. We pray this through Jesus and in his name. Amen.